broadcasting from Washington, D.C., this is Insider's Guide to Energy. This episode of Insider's Guide to Energy EV miniseries is powered by Power. Power helps your business transition to electric vehicles by simplifying charging, managing payments, and optimizing your charging data. Welcome to Insider's Guide to Energy EV Series. I'm your host, Chris Sass, and with me is my co-host, Neil Rydell. Neil, what an exciting episode we've got planned today. Yeah, this is one which uh, I think everyone's going to be listening carefully to because this is the one that I kind of grew up on as I was learning the world of renewables, which is what are people saying about the growth in this market? What are people advising us to do? What are the analysts looking at and what can we expect in the future? Well, I, I'd like to know answers to all those questions. Um, I can pontificate, as I like to say, or you might bring our guest on and we could just kick this off and dive right in. Yes. Yeah, so today we're speaking to Corey Cantor and we're going to dive into the world of where the electric vehicle transition is happening in the US. Uh, and for me, this is super interesting because the US is a bellwether for many markets. So I'm excited to hear how things are going over there. On the other side of the channel, on our rainy little island, the UK, we look across there. So, Corey, can you tell us a bit about how the transition's going and who are you and what do you do? Yeah, thanks, Neil, and thanks, Chris. Really great to have uh, to be on here today talking about one of my favorite topics, which is the EV industry and also in the U.S. Um, so maybe first a little bit about what I do. I work at a research firm called Bloomberg NEF, and we are a kind of uh, clean energy market transition research division within the broader Bloomberg. Uh, NEF was originally a kind of clean energy research firm uh, over 10 years ago that was acquired by Bloomberg. And so there are a bunch of teams that cover aspects of the energy transition, everything from solar, wind, and electric vehicles. Um, and so we write research reports, we talk to folks in the industry, and we cover very specific super deep niche topics. Um, and so I have been working on the advanced transport team for over four years now and really focusing on global electric vehicle policy as well as the North American EV market. And in terms of where the U.S. is at, it's kind of like if you look at a glass, either half full or half empty, depending on who you talk to. Um, if you're looking in the news anytime uh, over the past month or so, you'll see things like the EV growth is slowing. What is going on with the industry? Is this the end of EVs? And I'm, of course, I'm maybe um, paraphrasing a bit, but there's been a lot of kind of discussion around where uh, the space is. We at BNEF have data on a monthly basis and a quarterly basis. And so what we found is through the first three quarters of this year, the EV uh, sales are about up 54% year on year for both BEV and PHEV combined. And for fully electric vehicles, about 55%. But of course, we have to see how the end of the year goes. Um, and so we're always pretty data driven to see how things are changing. So we're not following too much of the noise. Um, but I think as we'll talk about, it's really on an automaker by automaker basis to kind of answer that question. So th that was a cool intro. Thank you very much. I mean, the bit that, as, that strikes me is when when I started looking at the world of renewables, yeah, it was slightly niche niche. It was the beginning. It was early. It's small. Is that where electric vehicles really are? Is it still a very niche topic or is there something in here that's actually really growing at quite a rate? Oh, yeah. It, it's no longer niche. I think we're we're leaving early adopter phase and getting into... Uh, the beginning of the kind of mass market consumer product. So, it, you know, we had about 10 and a half million passenger EV sales last year. And, and, you know, folks on the pod will hear me saying EVs, I mean, both battery electric, so your Tesla Model 3s and plug-in hybrid electric vehicles, which is your uh, Toyota Prius Prime 
for example. So yeah, we're in every market just a little bit different, um, but we're no longer just a couple of you know GM EV1s or you know Tesla Model Ss or Roadsters on the road. But I think that's different than being you know like things are in Norway, where it's a mass market product, ninety percent EV share of sales on a quarterly basis. I think we're in the transition and we're in it at different points, depending on if we're in the U.S. or the U.K. The U.K. is a little further along. Um, even U.S. states are a little different too. To help me understand the the size of the U.S. auto market, so you, you gave some numbers, but that's really not relevant to me because I don't know if that's out of ten million and one cars sold or out of you know a hundred million cars annually sold. What 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 number of vehicles are sold new each year? Yeah, so when I was saying ten million, that was a global number for all the EVs sold in the U.S. What we're going to see this year, for the first time as of September, the U.S. market hit about one million passenger EVs sold. Um, each year in the U.S. market, there's about 14 to 16 million passenger car sales for new vehicles. So U.S. EV share of sale last year was about 7.5%. This year, through the first three quarters, we've been at about 9.3%. So again, continuing to grow. Um, we you know, expect by the end of the year, it could be anywhere between 9.5% to about 11%. We'll see how it kind of uh, ends up fourth quarter is usually pretty big, um, but it's been so reliant on Tesla, for example, that it's a bit more challenging to say, how is every automaker going to do? And really, it's will Tesla hit its targets or not? Um, and of course, they're doing everything to make sure that they do. So those, those numbers are really interesting because actually they're not too far behind where the UK has been recently. We've seen a bit of a slowdown in the market due to global recession, buyer behaviors, you know, cost of living, et cetera. Are you seeing the same impacts in the US with the, with, you know, the, the economic climate impacting the purchase of new vehicles? I think the difference between, so for the UK, we have EV share of sale closer to 22% as opposed to that kind of 9.3%. Um, I believe 22% in the first half of the year, or it might be the full year 2022 numbers. Either way, how you slice it, it, in the US, I think you don't have as affordable models as you see from some of the European automakers. Yet, really, the Tesla Model 3 is your kind of, or the Chevrolet Bolt by GM are your biggest mass model EVs. Um, so in general, the biggest concerns for the U.S. has been public charging infrastructure and upfront cost, a little bit different than the U.K. I think you guys are further along on the transition and then running more into, you know, maybe the, the cost of living concerns. I don't think that's been as big of an issue in the U.S. Um, inflation was high, but I think all vehicle prices have gone up by quite a bit. Um, so we're, we're, we're a bit earlier. I think if we were at closer to 25 percent or 30 percent and, and we stagnated at that point, then maybe you could say that there's more at play. But really, the model availability only started improving over the past two years. And most of the premium EV models on sale here are still above forty forty five thousand dollars $45,000 before a tax credit. So what does this mean then, I guess, in terms in the U.S.? It seems like they're kind of a political um, hot potato sometimes EV. Some people see that as a, a political statement as opposed to a method of transportation. Are, are you seeing that in the, the media and, and in the take of what's going on? Or is the downtake just simply a reflection of interest rates? Well, yeah, you might be aware, Chris, we, we have a presidential election in 2024. So I think there is an element of this that will be increasingly political. We, uh, or I led a research note that we put out in September looking at US state EV markets. And as a part of that, we did a kind of correlation test between EV fleet share, so not the share of sales, but the overall EV stock of uh, the car population, and the Biden vote share in 2020. 
And there was a positive correlation with that. It wasn't a kind of one-to-one correlation, but it was a stronger correlation than median household income in the state. So states like California, um, obviously high, high Biden vote share or blue states did quite well, um, but it, it wasn't a uh, binary. There were states like Florida and Utah that are fairly Republican states that are also fairly wealthy states that did have higher levels of EV adoption compared to their red state peers. Um, so the answer is yes, but with the caveat of there's a lot of EV growing to do across the board. California in the first half of this year saw one in four cars as electric. So there, there still is plenty of the market to go at before you even start running into that political problem. That, again, is something that we're seeing in the data, but the market can also change. The EVs can become cheaper. I think in the next year, though, you'll see a lot of politicization of EVs, given who the likely candidates are for the Democrat and Republican parties. And then is it a political statement or not? I know in the media, you mentioned it in your intro, and I, I see it here living in D.C. in the papers that the auto manufacturers, you know, be them GM or you know traditional auto manufacturers, seem to be a little displeased with the take rate. So they tooled out for 2023 to produce some number of EVs. And at least if I'm to believe the mainstream press, uh, 2024, they're, they're reevaluating their EV strategies, or at least near-term EV strategies. So is this a reality? Yeah, I think when you look at GM and Ford, they've both pulled back, right? And I think when you look at the data, the reasons that they have pulled back might be different. I think for GM, the struggle has been around the Ultium battery buildup in their facilities. If you look at models like the Cadillac Lyric, where they've had a high number of pre-orders and consumer interest, they just haven't been able to pump out batteries at a volume to get to the customers who they already have. And then when you look at other vehicles that GM buyers may want, like the Chevrolet Silverado EV or the Chevy Blazer EV or the Chevy Equinox, they've either delayed them or released higher uh, cost trims. So you look at the Blazer that they have originally when they were uh, you know, advertising it or talking about it, they said, oh, the first trim is going to be about $45,000. Um, then when it comes to actually putting out the Blazer EV, you're now looking at $56,000. Uh, and that's before you even get to, um, before you even really see uh, you know, the dealer markups and that kind of impact that we can talk about. Um, with Ford, I think they have the Mach-E out and they have the Lightning. And I do think that some of the Lightning numbers have been uh, you know, not at the level that you'd want to see if you're Ford. I think that's probably my biggest concern looking at their market strategy. The Mach-E has had some pretty good months. So we'll see how the last quarter goes, but you can see that's why they're making these decisions. I don't think it's like they have a bunch of models out at high volumes that they're struggling to sell. It's either a higher upfront cost than they had promised or not being able to meet the volume that they uh, claimed that they were going to be able to. Less on the consumer, more on them. So, Corey, can I take you back to the question you made about affordable models in the U.S.? Why do you think that U.S. car manufacturers haven't produced more affordable models? What's going on? Yeah, so, Neil, one thing that we do at BNEF is we really look at the kind of price volume uh, of everything across the kind of uh I'd say auto sector. And really, once you get below $40,000, you really do unlock about half of the annual sales market. So about 7 million of that 14 million units. Um, So again, automakers are trying to follow that Tesla strategy of start towards the more expensive models and over time lower it as you rail up kind of economies of scales. and so, you know, to date, no one has fully emulated. Even if you look at Rivian, for example, if you just look at another startup, they started with vehicles at that seventy to $80,000 price range, and they're hoping to kind of move down the kind of EV price range over time. 
Um, so essentially, you know, we'll see. But really, only GM with the Chevy Bolt has been able to get there at this point. Do, do you and see the change in this? Is there been a change then in like the share economy or or whatever? So you know, with Ubers and folks like that. I mean, when I go to cities now, I, I do get picked up in electric uh, transport. So is that helping drive this transition or not? Because, there, I mean, are people using these? I mean, definitely in New York, I've been picked up in plenty of electric Ubers. Yeah, and you have a Revel, a uh, whole company dedicated towards electric vehicles in New York. You have Lyft and Uber with pretty aggressive 2030 targets. And it's interesting, every time I get into an Uber, there's less BNEF data than more anecdotal. I always ask people what they think. And sometimes it's a can of worms you, you didn't necessarily want to open because some of them love it and love the kind of experience. I think people who are doing more of that inner city driving, the people who do have a, a lot of airport um trips, I think, are more frustrated sometimes with just the state of public charging. Um, and I think that's a common theme you hear, not just in the kind of intelligent mobility space, but really in the U.S. at writ large, that there's not enough fast charging, not enough public charging. Um, and for these guys, you know, every trip is actual income. So if they have to wait around, even if they get the benefit of charging versus gasoline um, cost, you still lose the, a couple trips if you're at a slower charger. So, so that becomes quite interesting because it then opens up this idea of you know business versus personal purchase. Who is it that's buying these electric cars at the moment? Do you see a lot of companies adopting them or is it all being driven by individuals? Yeah, this is one big difference. When you work at a global company, you learn uh, about a really specific wonky policy called benefit in kind taxation, which is big in the UK, which is not as big here in the US. It's been more of a private consumer story to date. Now, it doesn't mean that state governments, the federal U.S. government are trying to get more of those electric vehicles, but we haven't seen the kind of uh, one production at a high enough level where you need these people to pick things up. Um, so it, it's still been a consumer story, which I guess might be good for the industry, right? It hasn't, despite, I think, some of the claims that like, oh, government is just forcing this to happen. I think it's been more in the early stages, at least based on Tesla's prominence um, and consumer adoption. As we head into the new phase, you know, moving away from early adoption, that's where policy will make more of a difference. But up until 2023, there really hasn't been a ton of policy at the federal level. It doesn't mean that California hasn't been doing what it could, um, but that will change, you know, again, as we talked about earlier with politics, dependent on, in some respects, what happens next year, but even beyond that, I think at the state level. So you know, if it's, if it's not policy, it, it may be the OEMs and the offering. So maybe it makes sense to spend a little time talking through the perspective of the different OEMs and where they're at, right? I mean, recently, once again, these pesky news, news outlets say things, and I, I listen and watch, for example, Toyota, uh, the former CEO made some interesting comments. And so let's start with Toyota and, and tell me, what are they doing? What's going on in the US market with Toyota? And are they really in the EV game? Or is their former CEO saying that maybe they should be betting elsewhere? Yeah, Toyota has like dipped a toe in the EV game um, in the U.S. market. So I, I think they're very much at the beginning of this overall process. Um, they sell a couple of BEV models. Uh, the aptly named BZ4X, Beyond Zero 4X. They have a Lexus model as well. I think that is done pretty uh, solidly. And then they have the Prius Prime and the RAV4 Prime. What I like to say about Toyota is they've talked about a kind of multiple drivetrain strategy conventional hybrids, plug-in hybrids, EVs, and fuel cell. And it's not like they've been firing on any cylinders in any of those particular categories, except for maybe your conventional hybrids. Um, so they made a big announcement that they're only going to be having the Camry as fully hybrid uh, from here on out, no base ICE model, um, which I think is pretty exciting. 
But yeah, they're a laggard. Um, and they've been saying things like, oh, we're going to go into solid state. We're going to have this great range and great batteries. But I think, as you can see from all of the automakers struggling, and by the way, it's not just to pick on GM and Ford, but you look at Volkswagen, for example, it's um, really hard <laughs> to make electric cars and to switch 100 years of knowledge for a newer technology. So anytime someone says we're going to leapfrog without having the proof that they've been building it for a while, I think it, it warrants skepticism. Um, so yeah, they're they're minimal in the US market. I know I gave a long answer on their overall thing, but they, they're a non-factor to date. So, so if you go from the you know the skeptical on the existing incumbents and then look at the guys who've come into the ring and are really punching above their weight at the moment, what's going on over at Tesla? So at Tesla, well, yeah, they are releasing the long-awaited controversial Cybertruck in two days to at least 10 consumers. Um, I actually went and saw the Cybertruck in person. If you're in New York City, uh, it's down at the store in the meatpacking district. And it's always interesting to go to either these auto shows and talk to people who aren't like us in the clean energy space, who read about EVs and the impact on climate all the time and just see what people think. Um, one, I will say, it looked better in person than a lot of the pictures I had seen. There weren't the missing gaps that you had seen um, reported about. Uh, it's really, really big. Um, and I think part of that could be the structure of the design. They wouldn't let you touch it. They wouldn't let you go inside of it. Um, and the people who I was speaking to were really nervous about um, what happens if you crash it? What happens if you have to fix it? Um, there weren't really good answers on that, but there were a lot of truck enthusiasts who had never had an EV before who were just going there to check it out. Uh, in terms of Tesla overall, they have about a 1.8 million uh, guidance for EV sales this year globally, and we're going to see if they're able to hit it. I think they need a pretty normal fourth quarter to be able to do so. But if you look at Tesla's models right now, really only the three and the Y are sold at high volumes. The X and the S have been reduced to kind of, I wouldn't say low, low volume car, but relatively low volume models um, in the kind of range of 20,000 or so, 20,000, 30,000 units a year. Um, but in the US market, they still make up about 50 uh, to 60% of the market on the uh, each quarter. Sometimes they dip into the 40s, um, but from their perspective, things are still going pretty well, so why change? But Tesla seems to have had some price reductions in the last year. I mean, at the same time, we were getting some, you know, five or $7,000 tax incentives to, to get a get an EV, and depending on what state you're in, you had state incentives. Uh, so so why are the prices dropping if, if life is going so well? Yeah, I mean, if you look at it, uh, Elon has said in various investor calls that the uh, demand for Teslas are infinity and it's just a pricing problem. Um, I think that some analysts may suggest that maybe there's a demand issue if you have to continue to lower prices. But back to the point I made earlier that there is this kind of marketplace out there for these twenty-five dollars to $40,000 cars that really isn't being tapped. And I think the Model 3 now fits nicely into that space. So what Tesla is doing is logical. And what they can do that other automakers can't is they have this ability to, you know, reduce prices to increase demand to some extent um, because they've built up economies of scale. If you look at other automakers, the reason why GM is can't, uh, is ending the bolt uh, for a period of time is that basically they don't want to lose that amount of money on every vehicle. If you look at other automakers like Lucid or Rivian even, they're still losing money on all their vehicles. So you have to kind of reach, um, I've used this line before, this idea of a kind of uh, valley of death uh, for electric vehicles, just like you see for 
kind of clean energy startups, you got to kind of make it to a, pla a place where you're making profit on each model, um, where you have enough factories and workers who are skilled who can kind of output EVs at a high rate. And then you can kind of begin to control what the prices are. Tesla made a killing during the pandemic by increasing the price of the Model 3 and the Model Y. At one point, the Model Y was about $65,000 in the US for not a very premium car. Now it's back in the kind of high $40,000 range, um, but it just shows what Tesla is able to do to adapt. Now, it doesn't mean they don't have any issues. It doesn't mean that the Cybertruck is going to be a success. They put a lot of money and time into it. And if the Cybertruck doesn't go well, then you might you know, be on in six months saying, wow, it's been four years since Tesla launched a model that people actually want to buy at high volume. Um, but for now, we're going to see how things play out. And of course, they've been teasing their cheaper Tesla for a couple of years now. And that's something I think that would be welcome in the marketplace. And, and the Cybertruck and the cheaper Tesla, both um, nice things to get. But one of the things that we've been watching, obviously, is these big HGVs rolling off the front of the Tesla factory. You know, trucks seems to be something that's really moving in the US. How much has Tesla influenced that? Trucks in terms of, you mean your medium and heavy duty trucks or your... Yeah, I mean, that's another interesting point in terms of the, the semi, which, again, to Tesla, both in some ways, it's almost like the things that Tesla does really well doesn't get enough attention. And the things that they bring a lot of attention on aren't doing as well as maybe I would hope. So the semi was launched about a year ago, and we really don't have a ton of data on how many they've actually sold. Pepsi has been their early partner. And obviously, taking away a internal combustion engine truck and switching over to electric has major climate benefits. So it's something the industry needs. In terms of actual success, we've seen more on the kind of van side to date. So if you look at Rivian's vans, the EDV that they've made for Amazon, uh, and no longer just for Amazon, as well as Ford E-Transit, it's been doing pretty well in the early stages. We see more commercial EV activity in China and a little bit in Europe to date. So in the US, the market is actually quite nascent. But you mentioned policy isn't maybe all there yet but if i think of the semi in the electric vehicle i think of california's regulations and yeah. the need right so so they may not be terribly worried yet because the, the nation may not have the infrastructure to have electric trucks everywhere but california is certainly running headlong into that right yeah and chris i i can't believe that kind of just rung a bell we've gone you know a good amount of time talking on the u.s market and i haven't mentioned the inflation reduction act which was the climate law passed last year by Congress and signed by President Biden. And really on top of the $7,500 tax incentive that everyone is kind of familiar with because it impacts your own uh, EV purchase, what people actually know less about is something called the commercial EV tax credit. And so what that is, is it is $7,500 if you're buying a kind of passenger car, but for certain vehicles, particularly those kind of long haul trucking, it can actually be up to $40,000 or 30% of the cost of the vehicle. Um, again, there aren't a ton of, uh, long-haul trucking EVs that are being built. But again, it's really to incentivize the market over a 10-year period to you know, create companies that go after that particular segment um, and, and really begin to address that kind of commercial vehicle space. Also applies to those Amazon Rivian vans too. Um, again, every vehicle is going to get a different amount of the credit, but that's where policy does make an impact. And that's on top of what California and New York State do, which are vouchers for those longer-haul trucking um, EVs. But again, we, we are so, so at the beginning of that, that there's a, a couple companies with targets um, and not even enough to where we can say we have def definitive findings beyond they need more charging infrastructure, which again, if I can't make this clear enough, it's like the U.S. charging network has a long, long way to go 
whether you're talking on the truck side or the passenger side. And that's why you're seeing billions of dollars in investments announced. Um, but of course, you want to see the actual charger build out. And what we found at BNEF is that even of all the NEVI funding, the National EV Infrastructure uh, Funding, which the folks who follow the space, that's the $7.5 billion package that Congress passed now two years ago. And of that $7.5 billion, $5 billion are in the NEVI program. Only 3% of the $5 billion have actually been awarded to charging infrastructure uh, operators. And some of that is because you roll it out over multiple fiscal years. But other reasons for that is basically the states have moved quite slowly. So if only 3% has been awarded, I'd be surprised if there are very many chargers that have been built at this point. When I've spoken to reporters on that particular funding pot, they think that the beginning of next year is when you'll start to see an actual difference of chargers being built out. It's slow so you don't have you know, mistakes made um, or you know, maybe duplication. And maybe to some extent it could be a good thing because you didn't have, um, we, there's been a debate around Tesla's charging type versus CCS, the combined charging standard. So maybe you won't duplicate as much effort. Um, but on the other hand, charging installations have been quite slow in the US compared to uh, the Netherlands or, or China, other kind of major EV markets. Yeah, I'm, I'm a total charging geek, so it's an absolutely <laughs> crucial pillar in that ecosystem of helping people get confidence to buy EV. What do you think slowing people down? Is it, you know, is it the other companies there that can deploy this capital? Is it the regulations at a state level? Is it availability of hardware or availability of grid connections? We spend oh all our time <laughs> complaining about grid connections here in the UK. Yeah, you know, do I have like an all of the, the above option? Because I think that is a the, the the actual answer to that. Yeah, it's permitting it. It's the grid interconnection. It's the fact that outside of Tesla, which again we just spent a little bit talking about Tesla in the passenger space, I think their charging success has been undercovered in terms of the amount of fast charger build out they have here. If other charging companies don't kind of step up, they could have. And I again, I definitely have said this before, so I'm not going to get in too much trouble. Exxon Mobil potential of being known as a, even more so than an EV company, as an EV fueling company. Um, now you've had other firms here like Electrify America or EVgo, um, ChargePoint have some success, but also a lot of issues. And really a lot of those issues have been around uptime. So less about the charges that they've built out, but the speed. And then just like we were saying about the articles in the press around um, you know, automaker uh, movements, there's also been a lot of criticism of, oh, I went to go visit a ChargePoint uh, or an Electrify America charger and it's not up. Or what are our uptime metrics? Now for the federal funding, they're going to be really stringent uptime metrics, but for your general charger, there isn't. Um, so consumers have been frustrated by that as well. Uh, it's messy. I think, yeah, one takeaway here from the overall US EV industry is it, it's messy, but there's a lot of potential there. Um, for different OEMs and for different charging network operators if they're able to kind of gain that advantage. I think to date only Tesla here really has on both the charging side and the EV side. Although there's a few other EV companies on the OEM side that have done better um, in the past year. So get the charging infrastructure, the policy. We, we've touched a little bit on the IRA. Um, you know, IRA also has a good bit about bringing onshore a number of things. Maybe you want to touch on that and how that impacts this conversation. Yeah, Chris, honestly, a great question, because we have put out research on that. And what we found is between, um, let's say, the, the day that the IRA was signed, which was mid-August 2022, and really just about the beginning of this month, there have been over $100 billion in investments in the North American EV supply chain. So that's US, Canada, Mexico. Um, and that's from everyone, from your Toyotas to your Hyundais to your um, Stellantis, GM, 
You even have Tesla with his Mexico facility, but not just the automakers, but battery manufacturers like SK on uh, LG. Uh, you've got goodness, um, Samsung, really everyone kind of chipping in uh, to kind of take a piece of that growing EV pie here. In terms of the actual market impact, and this is why I always tell people to, to kind of look big picture and not focus too much on, this is what the article said about last week or this month or next, or even the past quarter, it is you won't see the impact of these investments until the earliest, the second half of next year. That's when factories like Hyundai's factory in Georgia is slanted to come online. And once they're building here, it's a bit easier to ship here. You don't have to send it from overseas. You get some savings that way. Now, labor costs might be higher here. So there is a bit of a uh, give and take. Um, but all of the investments announced, you know, we start kind of modeling them as having an impact in 2025. So even in a year from now, if we were to all like have a conversation again, the marketplace could look a lot different. Um, given, you know, Hyundai coming over here, you've seen um, other folks, you know, saying that they're going to take the U.S. market more seriously starting next year. And again, as we've seen with the big three, just because you put money um, in doesn't mean the execution will be where it needs to be. Um, but with all these actors saying we think the U.S. is a viable market. Some of them are going to win out um, and take advantage of the opportunity here. And the IRA, given not only the EV tax credit, but something called the battery production tax credit, which is, I think, heavily under-discussed, has been a heavy incentive to move your battery production here. Um, and in fact, most of that $100 billion that I just cited before is in battery manufacturing. So one of the things that um, I watched recently was um, a, a short video from Roger Atkins, who was a previous guest on this show, and he was reviewing Chinese models coming into Europe in uh, the Amsterdam Fully Charged show. Are you guys seeing Chinese models arriving in the US? Not in the, in the same way. I think in Europe, we've seen BYD, for example, doing quite well and some of the Chinese startups looking to get into Europe. And you've seen the European Union, in fact, kind of push back saying these are heavily subsidized vehicles. We're going to look into it. In the US, because of things like uh, particular tariffs that make it hard for China to sell vehicles here, um, it's not as attractive as a market. There is a big provision in the IRA that has yet to be defined called the Foreign Entities of Concern provision that actually invalidates the $7,500 EV tax credit. Um, if there is a certain level of material from what is deemed a foreign entity of concern, most people think that there will be you know, China or Chinese-linked companies uh, within that term, but it's hard to talk about until they actually put it out. But the point is, is that it's not easy. And if you're a Chinese company and you're uh, vehicle may not get the credit. It's hard to strategize if you should onshore to the U.S. We have seen, for example, Ford partner with CATL uh, and licenses their technology in a forthcoming battery plant for um, LFP, lithium iron phosphate batteries, which again, yeah, we could go on for like an hour talking about different chemistries and the impact there. Um, but you know, to your original question, where I do think Chinese automakers could make an impact on the U.S. market is through Volvo. So Volvo, even though it's a Swedish company, is owned by Geely Group, and Volvo has been doing well in their EV share of sales in the U.S. Um, don't have the metric in front of me. I want to say it was somewhere in the 10 to 14% range in the last quarter. And they have the EX30 model, which is going to be launched at $37,000 coming next year. So again, we were talking about the sweet spot. They won't get the tax credit for that because I think it is built in China. Um, but again, it just highlights that 
Chinese automakers may be coming to the U.S. in a way that I think the news media is expecting BYD. BYD may choose to come at some point. Neo may choose to come at some point. And BYD is actually here in terms of the electric buses. Um, but if you're a Chinese OEM, you're going to have to think about not getting any tax subsidies and maybe even paying uh, more in terms of a kind of premium. Um, again, open story. And I think we've seen BYD in Mexico. We've seen BYD pretty much everywhere, um, but not to date being a factor here in the U.S. passenger car market. No. Let's change gears a little bit. You, you mentioned earlier in this interview, we talked about states. You know, I, I threw California out there. I think Texas has got some stuff going on. I think in your intro, you said things are vary by state to state. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so basically, I, I think the longest time in this analyst job, and even though I've only been here, you know, close enough, four and a half years, I feel like it's like it's almost been like a high school of education of like the world changing in a, a dramatic way. I, I'll, I'll kind of put it this way. When I first got to BNEF in 2019, the U.S. EV share of sale was about 2%. And the first half of this year was 9%. Um, so the market grew by about four times in about four years. And what you often hear is, well, isn't this just a California story? Isn't it California like here being like Norway and everywhere else kind of just in the low percentage? And so in the research that I led what we found is essentially a couple states have now kind of ascended to higher than the national average in a real way. So you look at Colorado, you look at Washington, you look at Oregon, and they're now approaching around one in five vehicles as electric. So anywhere between 16 to 20% of you know quarterly sales or in the first half of the year um, were electric cars. I'm from New Jersey. New Jersey thought, saw in the first half of this year about 13% EV share of sale. So did Massachusetts. And so what do those states have in common? Well, a lot of them follow California's fuel economy standards or California's zero emission vehicle program. Some states like New Jersey um, and Massachusetts are also kind of signed on to California's target for a 2035 phase out of purely gasoline car sales. So what is called advanced clean cars too. Now, it's not just states that follow California. I think what was really surprising to me was the state of Nevada actually had 20, uh, not 20, 12% EV share of sale in Nevada. And that's with no state subsidy. Now they do, you know, you know, have Tesla's factory there, but it, it just goes to show that it's not every state market has to almost be seen as maybe a country. Now you guys mentioned Texas. Texas is lagging that national average by a little bit. I think more in the six to seven percent range. New York State, where I'm based now, given the charging infrastructure challenges of New York City, is below the national average. Um, Illinois also, you know, struggling with EV adoption, even though you would say, based on our earlier talk, oh, blue state must be good on EVs. Not quite. It also depends on how dense it is, how charging build out is. Illinois only had a subsidy for EVs at the state level um, maybe a year ago. New York has had a $2,000 subsidy for a while, but clearly that hasn't been enough to offset um, maybe some of the charging challenges and the parking challenges. So again, every market has to be treated differently. But I think the biggest misconception is that California is way out here, kind of pie in the sky and everywhere else is not interested in EVs. And really there's now states in kind of different tiers uh, of EV interest. And then of course you do have some uh, red states that are more at about you know two percent uh, or or less kind of EV share of sale, um, and and maybe that changes, maybe not, but those markets are quite small. Um, one of the things that um, I don't know a huge amount about sat here in the UK is this dealers question. You know, direct sales and non-direct sales. You seem to have some peculiar approaches. What are they, and how is that impacting the sale of EVs? 
Yeah, and honestly, you know, to, to make it even more complicated, different states have different dealer laws. So in some states, for example, Tesla can sell directly to consumers. In other states, they're really restricted. Um, and some states, Tesla even has a carve out where they can sell directly to consumers, but Rivian and Lucid can't. Um, basically, dealership laws uh, encourage people to go into a uh, specific franchise, meet with people. Ford kind of you know gives their vehicles, for example, to dealers. Then dealers can sell those uh, cars or EVs. They also can do your maintenance. So in the kind of platonic ideal of a dealership, the nice thing about it is you know who can repair your car. You know who you can go to. Um, in the kind of, I'd say, more challenging part for not only the EV transition, but use of dealers is that they can mark up the prices. They can be quite opaque. When you're buying a Tesla online, you see $45,000, you know, yeah, you'll have taxes, and but you, you kind of know what you're getting yourself into. With a dealer, you can go to one dealership. It can be a completely different experience than another dealer. Um, and so with the EV transition, a lot of people's first kind of, uh, I'd say, experience with any car purchase is going through a dealer. And if they're not EV educated, um, if they don't have EVs uh, that they want to kind of sell, it can really hold up a consumer who otherwise may really want to go electric. Um, or things like, oh, like it can't charge in a certain way, or oh, not kind of explaining mileage. What Ford is trying to do is do more sell selling online moving forward. Um, Ford is certifying some dealers as kind of EV uh, specialists and requiring them to install uh, chargers. Of course, there was news out just over the past couple of weeks that Ford has rolled back some of those requirements. But you can see what the idea is here, which is to really make sure that dealers are invested in this EV transition. I think it just adds another hurdle for the US OEMs or OEMs trying to play here if they want to see EV adoption uh, take off. Um, we didn't even get into unions, which is a whole other conversation given the UAW strike. But I, I think in a big picture, both the U.S. is kind of a weird market. Um, you can see why Tesla has done fairly well here. And I think dealers as an agent, which is moving towards those more online sales and dealers playing still an intermediate role, but uh, intermediary role, but in a different way. No one has shown the kind of success of doing it to date. Um, so again, it adds some additional costs. It doesn't mean it can't be done, but we were already talking at the beginning of our conversation about the upfront cost of vehicles across the board and dealers, you know, are increasing that upfront cost. So yeah, you may see that Chevy Blazer EV with an MSRP of $55,000, but when you walk in, you don't know what you're necessarily paying for until you actually get the contract through a dealer. But I think that makes it more of an uphill battle for legacy U.S. auto manufacturers, right? Because if you look at how strong the dealership networks have been and the way it's been created in state by state with some of the legislation of using dealerships are, um, they can't just break those contracts and get out of them, right? They can't just decide tomorrow that they no longer want to have dealers and they're just going to open up a showroom in every mall and have it next to the Tesla. Um, not even dealership because Tesla, most states won't let you call it a dealership. It's a showroom, I guess, or whatever they call it. Um, do you see legislation or are you seeing a change to to that infrastructure to, to allow allow that break to take place to remain competitive or maybe it's forcing the other guys to have the same table stakes? And, and Chris, I, I think you you know you're in DC. You can say as well as me. From my my recollection, I used to be a U.S. Senate staffer. The other dealers are a pretty strong lobby organization, so it's not something that they. Uh, necessarily would want to uh, upend and change. And what I will say is it, it'll be interesting to see moving forward what attack they take. The California New Car Dealers Association has a great publication they put out every month on the changing California market. And given how many Californians are interested in EVs, there's kind of an element of you have to find a way to play ball in the state. 
Um, so I'm curious if more places will follow that kind of California model um, and have to change, or if they're going to be a kind of roadblock. I think it's an open question. Uh, one of my colleagues on uh, the EV team here at BNAF has put out great reports highlighting the additional cost that dealers do put on EV adoption. And in my research note on states, you do see states with direct sales has having higher EV adoption than those that have a ban on it. Um, but again, we are in the early phase of transition. I think when you add everything up, uh, Chris, you could see why the legacy automakers are struggling both on the buildup of production side all the way to actually selling it to consumers. And really, we need to see moving forward how things change. Um, every quarter is different. Um, and to date, really, only Tesla has cracked the code. Uh, but you know, you could see why if you're a GM Ford and Stellantis that you really need to, I, th I thought coming into the year that 2023 would be a year of progress. I think I walk out personally with more questions about those three than I came in. Um, but you really need to see progress in 2024. And whether that's figuring out some of these dealer questions, lowering upfront cost or having more EV uh, volume output, um, you know, you have to kind of show that you're able to, to, to bridge that gap. I'll kind of close in saying there aren't too many legacy OEMs who have you know, fully transitioned to being electric. Um, you now have a bunch of targets that are going to come into play starting in 25 to 2030, 2035, and not targets that policymakers have made. These are often automaker targets. I mean, it's been a couple of years, but GM did say that their aspiration is to go all electric by 2035. Volvo just this year recommitted to 2030 being fully electric, and Mercedes-Benz also has aggressive EV targets. Um, so again, this isn't Corey Cantor, the analyst here, saying, you know, automakers, you guys got to do what's good for climate. It's they have said to their shareholders and stakeholders that this is their goal. Um, so as we head into the back half of the decade, a lot of the work and success there is going to be built on the efforts and impacts that these automakers uh, do through their decisions this year into next year into 2025. This has uh, been a fabulous little journey through what's going on on the other side of the the pond. Um, from where I'm sat, it sounds like you've got growth. Uh, you've got quite widespread growth. It's not it's not there down at a particular state. There are some challenges, but there's also uh, a policy and regulatory environment which seems to be generally quite supportive of this transition. Um, so thank you hugely for the update on where you see this market going. Yeah, thanks, Neil. And I'll add uh, that there's a big opportunity too, um, because if the big three don't fill in the space, for example, it could be Honda Kia. If Honda Kia doesn't fully fill in the space, it could be Volvo, it could be Rivian. Um, I think Tesla's put enough pressure on this market where, yeah, if Tesla didn't exist um, at the level that it does, you know, maybe you could say that the policy alone isn't enough, but now other people will eat the market share. And so the question isn't if there will be a US EV transition, it's just how fast will it actually occur and who will benefit from it. Awesome. It's been an amazing episode. Thank you, Corey. Um, thanks for your time. We, yeah, thanks, Chris. We, we, we look for our audience. We hope you've enjoyed this content. We've tried to get a little bit of a balance. The next few shows, you're going to see more of a U.S. perspective on the EV market. We've done quite a bit about Europe and the U.K. So as we keep producing this series, expect to see more. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Follow us on YouTube. Follow us on LinkedIn. And share us with your friends. We look forward to seeing you again next time on the Insider's Guide to Energy EV Series. Bye-bye for now.